Today we're back in our message series on the life of Jesus. There is no time traveling in today's message. There is no enormous history lesson or anything like that. It's Jesus, 12 dudes around a table having dinner, and I'm looking forward to this today. We're looking at the time Jesus spent on earth as a man performing miracles, and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. The life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find in the Bible. These four books are collectively referred to as the Gospels. And today we're gonna begin in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. In our last study in this series, we saw Jesus gather his disciples together for a meal, the most famous meal of all time. In fact, it is the meal known as the Last Supper, the one famously depicted in the like-named painting by da Vinci, and it was a meal to celebrate the Jewish feast known as Passover. The last time we were in this series, we marveled as Jesus gave his disciples an incredible lesson in what it means to be one of his disciples, and he did that by washing their feet. This week, we're gonna look at that same act again, but a little bit more. There's so much here that's important and applicable to our lives, we don't wanna just rush past it which is something I've never been accused of doing in my teaching style. Jesus is going to model what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Now, there's some disagreement among scholars when you get to the Last Supper as to the specific order that all of these things took place in. It doesn't change anything theologically or historically, but there's just some minor debate about did Jesus wash their feet before they argued about who the greatest or after they argued over who was the greatest. I'm gonna teach the events in the order that my feeling is that they occurred in, but it's not a huge thing either way. So let's jump in. Luke 22, we're going to begin in verse 24. It says, now there was also a dispute among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And so keep in mind, as we've shared before, that these guys are all pretty much teenagers with maybe the exception of Peter. And they're having a a dumb testosterone-fueled argument as teenage boys are wont to do whenever you stick them together for a couple of years to hang out. But also understand the reality of the situation that's unfolding from Jesus' perspective. I know we've talked about this before, but he knows that very night he's going to be arrested and his march toward the cross is going to begin. I, I can't imagine how frustrating and infuriating the disciples' argument would have been to me if I had been in Jesus' shoes. But for those who belong to him, Jesus is full of grace and truth, and he's so patient. That's why we love him so much. He's not like us. He's so much better. And so he says to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And then underline this, but not so among you, not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you Let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And then underline this, yet I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus says, out in the world, the goal is to be the big enchilada, the big boss, the big cheese, to get a seat at the table, do everything you can in life to get to the place where you're the one being served rather than the one serving. But then what does Jesus say next? He says, but not so among you. 
He says, boys, it's not how it works in my kingdom, in my economy. In my kingdom, it's the complete opposite. And he says, I am exhibit A. I am exhibit A. The whole reason I came to the earth, guys, was to serve people like you. And even now, that's what I'm doing. And so Jesus says, boys, if you can't wrap your head around what it means to be great by being a servant, if that's too hard to understand, he says, all you have to do is look at me. All you have to do is look at me. Look at my life. Look at how I live. And look at how I'll soon die for you. So make a note of this. As the life of Jesus shows us greatness in the kingdom looks like service on the earth. Greatness in the kingdom looks like service on the earth. At this moment, you can imagine the the air is just sucked out of the room and all the disciples are deeply convicted. You know, it's one of those moments where the Holy Spirit just speaks and if you're a guy, you feel like you just got kicked in the crotch. Sometimes it feels like that when the Holy Spirit speaks just the right word at the right moment. It's like, oh, and the room falls silent and they, they all realize they've totally blown it by arguing over who's the greatest. And yet Jesus goes on to say this in verse 28. He says, and I have this underlined in my Bible, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, but you are those who've continued with me in my trials. And this verse messes me up. It's it's very, very personal for me because Jesus is saying, you have blown it, and you've blown it over and over and over and over again. But I give you credit for this. You stayed with me. When things were difficult, when people were trying to throw me off a cliff, you stuck around, and that blesses me. And when I say Jesus gives them credit for that, I don't mean he gives them like a shout out or like a a fist dab or a pat on the back. Let's find out what it looks like when Jesus gives his followers credit. Verse 29, here's what it looks like. He says, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We could do a whole study on how, how incredible this verse is because Jesus is saying, as real as the kingdom that the Father gave to Jesus is, equally real will be the kingdom that Jesus will give to his followers, which is gonna unfold on the earth after the second coming. It's gonna be real. And that's the sort of reward you get when Jesus gives you credit for the simple act of following him. And that's what I love about Jesus. He says, guys, you've done one thing well. I can't seem to get rid of you. I can't seem to get rid of you. You've managed to hang around. And I love it that that Jesus actually says that's an admirable characteristic. He's like, "You're, you're train wrecks and you're juvenile and you blow it over and over again, but you're still here. You're still here. And he says, I love that about you. Regardless of how many times you fall or fail, Jesus gives credit and rewards to those who will say through it all, Jesus is my God, he's my king. But let's take it a step further because you might be thinking this right now. Here's what's really amazing. In the next 24 hours from this moment in time, the words of Jesus, you are those who have continued with me in my trials, will not apply to the disciples. They'll abandon Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Most famously, Peter, he's gonna deny even knowing Jesus three times. And Jesus yet looks ahead to heaven and tells the disciples, hey guys, great rewards are waiting for you because you've stuck with me. 
but yet Jesus knows they're gonna abandon him within the next 24 hours. So how in the world does that make any sense at all? Well, I'll put this on your outlines. Take a look at Hebrews 10, which is where we read this. It says, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, and underline this, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, these sins, There's no longer an offering for sin. There's no longer a need for an offering for sin. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. He's saying God does not remember your sins. Once you belong to Jesus, God does not remember your sins past, present, or future. They're covered all the same way by the work of Jesus on the cross. But you know what he does remember? He remembers the righteous things that his spirit does through you and I, the good things. And so Jesus is able to tell his boys with total honesty, there's a reward in heaven because you stuck with me when things got difficult because he doesn't even remember the times when they didn't. He doesn't even remember. They're gone forever. It's an incredible, incredible truth. So I'm gonna ask you at this point if you would to turn with me to John 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the next gospel in your Bibles, John 13. At this point in the life of Jesus, the, the gospel of John takes center stage because the back half of the gospel of John is almost entirely made up of what Jesus taught at the Last Supper. And the message that Jesus begins to teach his disciples here is known as the upper room discourse. And it's so vital because this is Jesus' last really big teaching that he gives his disciples before he goes to the cross. He's saying, this is the stuff you guys need to know. Everything I've been sharing with you comes down to this. This is how you follow me. So verse one in John 13, it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, underline his own, who were in the world, and then underline this, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And that phrase, he loved them to the end, literally means he loved them to perfection without limit. Have you ever felt like you've tested the limits of God's love? Like you were at times, or most of the time, very difficult to love? Let me tell you the truth. Your God loves you without limit, without limit. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you are his own. And you can't even test the limits of a love that has no limits. That's how he loves us. He knows your past failures. He knows your present failures. And yes, he's seen your future failures, but he's also seen your future glory. 
who you're going to be when that sin nature is finally stripped away and you're given a fully redeemed body. You see, he's seen that too. And I had you underline that phrase, his own, because that's who we are too. In his word, Jesus calls us his own sheep. He calls us his own brethren, his own brothers, his own siblings. He calls us his own bride. And he calls us his own body. He created us. He chose us. He redeemed us by dying for us. We are his own. We belong to Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that. I think I've shared this before, but I want to challenge you to go read 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter in the Bible known as the love chapter that really defines love incredibly beautifully. But I want you to read that passage understanding that it describes how the Lord loves you, how he loves you. In fact, let me do that for you right now. The word says in 1 John that God is love, and so I wanna read you a portion of 1 Corinthians in a way that will help you understand how the Lord loves you. You could read it like this, we could say, God is patient and kind. God is not irritable, and he keeps no record of being wronged. God does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. God never gives up, he never loses faith, he's always hopeful, and his love endures through every circumstance. That's how the Lord loves you, he's the model. And he's chosen to love you like that before you had any idea what love was or looked like. He loves you. So make a note of this. When we choose to receive the love of God, we're accepting a love without limits. When we choose to receive the love of God, we're accepting a love without limits. Without limits. Then in verse two we read, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now please understand, this doesn't exonerate Judas. This doesn't free him from the responsibility for his actions because his wicked heart desired to do the exact same thing that the devil desired to bring about the death of Jesus. The devil and Judas were in agreement. It wasn't that Judas was taken over and forced to betray Jesus against his will. His will aligned with the will of Satan. Verse three, Jesus, and then underline this word, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, underline from God, and was going, and then underline to God, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. This is a whole complete message in one verse. This is the key to the Christian life in one sentence. Let me share with you three things Jesus was absolutely certain about. Three things that were the foundation of his existence and the secret to his power and his life. He knew where he came from. He understood his present reality even when he couldn't see it. And he knew where he was going. And this is what you and I need to live effectively and powerfully as followers of Jesus. Every single time I fall short in my faith walk, it's inevitably because I've lost sight, I've forgotten for a moment or longer one of these realities. Make a note of this, the first one is this, I have a maker, I have a maker. I came from God, 
I'm not a cosmic accident. I'm not the result of a preposterous statistical anomaly in the universe. I was made by a God who put thought into me. And when you know where you come from, then you know you have an identity and suddenly you're freed from all the tragic foolishness that people get into when they have no identity. Because it's at that time that they begin to look around the world for answers and say, well, well, who am I? Who am I? And they begin to ask the world, which the Bible tells us belongs to Satan. They ask the world, who am I? You tell me who I am. Why do people do stupid stuff with other people? It's because they're desperate to belong. They crave an identity. Even if it's a stupid identity, it's something. It's something, and it's unbelievable what people will do to have an identity. But that's not meant to be our story. We have a maker and a creator. We were created to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. We were created with purpose. We were created to bring glory to God and enjoy Him forever. And when you know where you're from, then you have an identity. You have roots. Secondly, I'm getting excited about this. Ephesians 2 tells us this, it's on your outlines. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and then underline this, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, the Bible says that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You might be looking around you and saying, Jeff, you don't know who I'm sitting next to right now. We're not in heavenly places. But let me just tell you that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. It didn't look like it. All I see at this point in his life is a bunch of people that want to kill Jesus and humiliate him, a bunch of juvenile followers around him. And yet the Bible talks about future realities as present realities. Why? Because when God makes a plan, it will happen. It is unstoppable. The plans of God are more certain than the reality that we are in right now at this moment. As sure as you are about the seat that you're sitting in right now, God's promises about the future are even more sure. And so Jesus embraced the Father's promises about the future and considered them to be his present reality. He knew that God had put all things under his feet. That was his present reality even though they hadn't been fulfilled yet. Jesus lived in that reality, and that's what we need to do. Because when you understand your present reality, you have security. You're not running around life like a chicken with your head cut off, trying to secure your future against everything that could possibly ever go wrong. You're not ruled by fear over the future or fear over death. When you understand that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, you're a child of the King, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, and that nobody whose life is placed in the hands of Jesus slips through, then you are secure when you understand that's my reality right now. That's the position we need to live in and from today. We're fighting a war, yeah, but we're fighting from a position of victory. The result is inevitable. My present reality is this, write this down. I'm victorious in Christ right 
now. I'm victorious in Christ right now. I have security in this life through Jesus. There is nothing that can or will happen to you in this life once you belong to Jesus that will change the fact that at the end of your story you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Nothing can change that. That is the reality. That's not the possibility, it's reality. Number three, write this down. I have an unshakable future in heaven. I have an unshakable future in heaven. All my priorities and goals are to be shaped by the reality I'm gonna spend eternity with Jesus. And what that does is it frees me from pursuing so much meaningless stuff. This is the tragedy of most people's lives. Most people spend their whole lives chasing things that other people tell them will make them happy. Chasing the things that other people tell them will make them happy. That's most of our society. A bigger home will make you happy. A faster car, a more important title, a better job, more recognition, more followers, more people liking you on social media. That will make you happy. Oh, they must be telling me the truth. Must be telling me the truth. Jesus has revealed to you and I how to live for eternity, for something that's actually gonna matter. We don't have to guess. And Jesus has also told us the most fulfilling way to live here right now. And if you haven't noticed, that is one of the great struggles of the Christian life. It's because as soon as you seem to start understanding that and getting that, it's like Satan tries to just turn up the volume on all the messages the world is giving you about what's gonna make you happy. And so often you wake up and you go, oh man, what am I doing? I'm devoting energy to this. I know that's not gonna make me happy. And I can't stress enough the freedom that is found in removing yourself from the desperate need to impress other people. There's so much freedom in living for the approval of God instead. When we understand our destination, our lives have a purpose and they have a vision. Jesus saw the big picture. He knew where he was going. He had a vision and a purpose. He knew that the Father's plan was unstoppable and therefore his present reality was in fact very different to what it looked like from the outside. And Jesus knew where he came from, so he had an identity. Perhaps what frustrated the religious leaders the most was how free Jesus was from their fear and any type of need to have other people approve of or applaud him. When you read through the Gospels, you're gonna be struck by this. The Pharisees had a rule of, of fear and condemnation over the people. Everyone was desperate for their approval because they were the ones who said whether you were a good man or not. Jesus shows up and it's mind-blowing and he drives them crazy because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. When they tell him, stop doing that, he's like, no. No. When they try to tell him, oh, well, no, this is what the Bible says, he's like, well, no, that's not what it says. And I'm really sure because I, I wrote it. I wrote it. And he just doesn't care. Jesus is not motivated by whether or not the thousands of people are listening to him or not. He's motivated by pleasing the Father, so he teaches the truth when the hillside is covered with 20,000 people, and he teaches the truth when they all leave. 
He's completely free from any type of need to have man's approval and applause. It's incredible who Jesus was. He got his every need met, his need for self-esteem entirely met in his relationship with the Father. So nobody had any power over him because he didn't have a need that they could try to meet. You want to talk about being free-spirited? You want to talk about true individuality? You want to talk about being a genuine rebel in society? Jesus was all of that in a truer sense than anyone has ever been. He was more of an individual than anyone has ever been. I always think it's so funny in our society that you have products that are marketed to the masses, millions of people, and they're marketed as buy our product so you can be an individual. And I always think just like everybody else, right? You know, it doesn't even make sense to market anything with the angle of this will help you be an individual. Well, seeing as this message is going out to 30 million people, I I, I doubt that, I doubt that. Jesus lived in the world, but the world had no power over him. He's, He's extraordinary, extraordinary. Verse four, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. So Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his coat, grabs a towel, pulls up his undercloak so it's turned into a pair of shorts so that he can get down and do the work of a servant. And we're gonna find that shockingly, the work that Jesus is about to do is washing the feet of the disciples. This verse is a perfect picture of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man. I put this on your outlines. In Philippians 2, this is what we read about Jesus. He made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, when Jesus became a man, he he laid aside all his godly glory, all his superpowers, if you will, and instead chose to gird himself with human flesh and take on a frail human body. And he could have put back on his God glory at any moment, as easily as we would put on a cloak. In fact, that's what Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to do during the temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Satan is trying to say, hey, this would be so much easier if you would just go back to your God state. Cheat, don't do this as a man. He could have put it on at any moment, but he didn't. Every step of his journey, Jesus stuck with the plan and stayed submitted to the will of the Father. And when you understand this concept, it will radically change the way you read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels because it means that every miracle he performed, every teaching he gave, he did it all by relying on the Holy Spirit. He didn't do any of it with his own natural power. He did it through the, ha- the same Holy Spirit being in him that resides in you and I. So how did he become so full of the Holy Spirit? He relied on the Father and he had a more intimate relationship with the Father than anyone who's ever lived. And it makes Jesus' commitment to seeing the cross through to the end all the more extraordinary. We interrupted the flow between verse three and verse four, but there's a huge vital crucial truth in that flow. Let me read it to you again. Verse three, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now verse four, 
rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Here's what you can't miss, make a note of this. Verse three is what makes verse four possible. Verse three is what makes verse four possible. The only reason Jesus had the power to serve his disciples was because he knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, and he knew who he was in the Father. You see, you can do your best to try and be a good person. You can do your best to try and serve others. You can do your best to try and be humble. You can do your best to try and put others ahead of yourself. But ultimately, you cannot do what Jesus did in your own strength. It won't last. You will get an attitude within you and you'll be able to hide it for a while, but sooner or later, that bitterness is gonna creep out and you're gonna be exposed as resenting the fact that you've been asked to live as a servant, unless, unless your motivation and your power comes from verse three. You have to know where you came from. You have to know where you're going. And you have to know your identity in Christ. And when you're rooted and grounded in verse three, the Holy Spirit will empower you to do verse four just as it did Jesus. And I'm not gonna stand here and preach you three points that you should apply to your life as though you can just make a decision to live as a radical servant like Jesus did. You can't. You can't just decide to do it. I can't just decide to do it. That kind of power and strength only comes from the Holy Spirit empowering you from within. Instead of saying, let's all try really hard to be good this week. Let's all really try to be servants. I want to encourage you instead this evening to stop and spend some time meditating on the truths that God is your maker, God is your destination, and you're a son or daughter of the living God right now. Just soak in those truths. Think on them over and over and over again until you understand them. And here's how you'll know that you understand those things. When you find yourself beginning to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. When you begin to just thank God that he made you, he created you. When you begin to just thank him that you're seated with him in heavenly places. When you begin to thank him that your future is with him. When that gratitude begins to naturally flow, then you're beginning to understand those things. Then go live as a servant, not in your strength, not in your power, but in the strength of knowing who you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit flowing through your life. You're never gonna live out verse four until you're rooted and grounded in verse three. Verse five, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Many of you know, but in case you don't, you can easily imagine the state that one's feet would be in at the end of a day of being out and about in the city of Jerusalem, packed with a few million people during a feast time. You'd be wearing sandals and your feet would be covered with dirt, dust, mud, uh, things coming out of animals as they walked down the streets and any number of other materials. And a good host for a dinner would arrange for his guests to have their feet washed, but it would always be the task of the lowest servant or slave. But there's no servant or slave around, they're just borrowing this room. And the disciples sure as heck aren't gonna wash each other's feet. They've just been arguing about who's the greatest, so Jesus steps in. And they, they would have been 
shocked. And whenever water appears in the scriptures and is used for any type of washing, so get this, whenever water appears in the scriptures and it's used for any type of washing, it's generally a symbol of the word of God. Jesus is gonna say, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The apostle Paul will later write that we're washed by the water of the word. And so the picture here is that Jesus is using his word to wash all the dirt and filth and crud that gets onto us as we walk through the world on a daily basis off. You know, no matter how righteous a person you are, you're gonna get some dirt on you because you live in a fallen, broken world. I see it in my own life all the time. Attitudes creep in, sinful thoughts creep in, fears and anxieties and doubts creep in. We need to have good spiritual hygiene habits. Now, none of us would be okay if we had a six-year-old kid and we said, hey buddy, when did you last take a shower? And their answer was, you know, I took one on Christmas, then again on Easter, a couple of times since then. It's Mother's Day, I'll probably have a shower on Mother's Day, I'll probably do that. We'd all be like, um, that's not enough. You're getting dirty a lot faster than you realize. And yet sometimes we'll take that approach to church and time in the word and confession of our sins. It's one of the supernatural things that the word of God does, you know, it it resets you. I can't explain it. It's not like we gather here, study the word of God, and then we all work out better because you all remember everything that I taught. That's not what happens. I'm fully aware that a lot of the times you're like, man, that message blessed me. You get in your car and you've already forgotten almost everything that I said. I know that. But I also know, and you've noticed, that something supernatural happens when we just gather together around the word of God. And he brings back those things that you forgot by the time you got to the car park. He brings them back in the moment when you need them. And you also find that there's just an effect on your life from being with other believers, gathering together as the church under the word of God. And I I like to believe that if you're here on a regular basis, you've seen this effect in your life. And it's more than just the accumulation of knowledge about the scriptures. It's God doing something supernatural through his word, washing us in his word. We need good spiritual hygiene habits. And when we try and cheat on our spiritual hygiene, when we try and say, well, I don't really need my feet washed, we're like the pubescent teenager spraying deodorant all over the body and saying, well, that's just as good as a shower. We're not fooling anybody. We're not fooling anybody. We need to be washed in the word daily. We need to make confession on a daily basis. The Bible says, what if you confess your sins to the Lord, he's faithful to forgive you. He's faithful to forgive you. We don't need to be saved all over again but we need to be made clean. We need to be healed and washed on a daily basis. Not only does Jesus wash our feet, but he dries them too. So not only does he cleanse us from the dirt we pick up by being fallen people in a fallen world, but he gets us ready to go back out there again and be ambassadors for him. How does he help us when we're out there? Well, what's Jesus doing right now? Bible says he's praying for us right now. He's interceding for us in the presence of the Father. He's still serving you and I at this very moment. That's an incredible thought. So make a note of this. We need daily spiritual cleansing by being washed in God's word. 
We need daily spiritual cleansing by being washed in God's word. Verse six, then he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you'll know after this. Some of you might wanna underline that. What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Lord, this is, this is inappropriate. Jesus answered to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter says, Lord, what are you doing? This, this doesn't make sense. This is crazy. Why are we doing this? And Jesus could have said, well, Peter, I'm giving you a model that you're gonna draw upon later as one of the early church fathers, but Jesus doesn't do that. All he says is this. He says, Peter, if you're gonna follow me, this is what we're doing right now. And you're not gonna get it right now, so I'm not gonna explain it to you right now. But later on, in the future, there's gonna come a time where you're gonna look back at this moment and you're gonna get it. You're gonna understand it. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know I can. If you follow the Lord for any significant length of time, you're gonna find yourself in similar situations. And the lesson we all have to learn is that Jesus is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. If you're a parent, you know the frustration of your kid asking you a question and you wanting to give a short answer. And your kid just interrogating you with 10 more questions to the point where you're like, I was here the day you were born. You're still alive, right? I've done an okay job so far, not starving to death. You've still got all four limbs, still alive, still wearing clothes, so maybe you don't worry so much and you just trust me because I'm the parent, right? Every parent can identify with that. And those moments are gonna happen with the Lord. There's gonna be times where the Lord is just like, um, I saved your soul from hell, so maybe you can just trust me on this one and we'll deal with it later on, we'll talk about it later. But here's the problem. We want the revelation, we want the understanding before we obey. Jesus has a way of saying, I want you to learn to trust me, so we're gonna do obedience first, and then the revelation is gonna come later on. Is there any area of your life where the Lord has asked you to do something, but you're refusing to obey until you get more revelation? till he shows you the whole plan? Are you refusing to obey until that other person changes their attitude? Are you refusing to obey until you think it makes sense? Are you refusing to obey unless the Lord gives you more money first? You see, that attitude is backwards because for the Christian, revelation follows obedience. It follows obedience. Verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. This is an awkward situation for all the disciples. It was uncomfortable. It was socially out of place for Jesus to be doing this. But Jesus' response made the real point of his actions clear. We have a daily need for cleansing from the junk we pick up in our fallen world. And Peter wanted everything God had, but in verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Again, Peter, you're saved. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need a full bath again. But even when you're saved, you're still gonna battle your flesh, this sin nature. So we have this daily need to be washed in the word to keep intimacy and relationship with Jesus because the spiritual dirt of the world we live in gets on us every single day. And that's why we still practice confession even after we're saved. Confession is simply agreeing with God 
about what sin is. When we confess that and we confess our own sins, it keeps us close to the Lord in relationship. That's all we're doing. We're saying, Lord, I believe you that this is sin, that this is destructive. And Lord, I'm sorry I've done this and I need to be forgiven by you. Do you know what that does? It keeps us grateful for the cross because when we're reminded every day that we need forgiveness, it begins to dawn on us. Holy smokes, I I need the cross every single day, all day. And it fills us with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. It fills us with thanks for the gift of grace and it keeps us free from sin getting a grip on our lives because it's just like dirt, you know? It might not seem that big of a deal the first time it's on there, but as the days pass and you don't shower, that smell gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. You might have to do some real scrubbing to get it off after a week, but if you'll do it every day, it stops it from setting in, and it's the same thing with sin. If you'll confess daily, stay close to the Lord daily, be washed by him daily, then sin can't get the same kind of grip on your life. Then Jesus said, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. That's why he said, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know why I've done this for you? He's saying, boys, it wasn't that your feet stunk. I've done this for a really specific reason, so tune in. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example. And the word here that's used for example means pattern. Jesus is saying, I've shown you what it looks like to be a servant. I'm the example, I'm the pattern. Then he goes on and says that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, and then underline this, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. The more I study the life of Jesus, the more in awe I am of how he lived out his servanthood in such a way that completely robs me of my ability to ever say, that's beneath me. Or, I don't, I don't serve like that. I do that, but I, I don't do that. Jesus washed feet. He, he laid down his life. Who, who does that? What kind of God does that? And he did it so that he could say to me, follow me. Walk the same path that I have walked. Live the same life that I lived. Be a servant like I am. Do as I do. He didn't come and say, I want you to live as servants. I'm not going to because I don't have to because I made you, but I want you to live as servants. He didn't do that. He came and lived the exact kind of life he wants us to live. He was the servant first because in all things, Jesus goes first. I'm so struck by the strength of Jesus. Again, he didn't care about what social constructs or models of leadership he was turning upside down. He didn't care what anybody else thought. He didn't care if others said, that's, that's really undignified. You're supposed to be a, a spiritual leader and you're there washing feet of, of your own disciples. He didn't care if people said, well, that's, that, that's not really manly. 
He didn't need their approval. And he wasn't phased when the people he was serving didn't understand or, or adequately appreciate that they were being served. Get this about Jesus. He died for the same people who killed him. That's incredible. He died for the same people who killed him. You know, sometimes I set out to serve my family well, but when I feel like it isn't adequately appreciated, because I can be a baby like that, then I get cranky. And not Jesus. Not Jesus. He just says, you'll get it one day. You'll get it one day. And if that's decades from now, that's fine. Jesus lived a life that said to be strong is to serve. And then he said to you and I, you want to be great? You want to be truly great? Follow me. Be the servant of all because that's who I am. And he says a servant is not greater than his master. And Jesus is my master, so, so I've got no excuse. He served, so I must serve. He washed feet and laid down his life. I must do the same. Verse 17, if you know these things, underline this, this is huge. Blessed are you if you do them. After absolutely rocking their world by turning the idea of importance upside down, Jesus ends this little saying by saying this, if you get this and live it out, you're gonna be so blessed. Now this is huge, get this. Don't ever confuse knowing these things, studying these things, taking notes on these things. Don't confuse all of those things with doing these things. For those of us who love God's word, there's a great danger for us in making the mistake of thinking that just because we know something from God's word, just because we understand it, just because we agree with it, just because I stand up here and I say, we're called to be servants, and you go, amen, that's good, that's right. There's a tendency for those of us who love the word of God to say, just because I know it and I agree with it and I understand it, I must be doing it. Not so, not so. It is a weekly experience for me as I prepare every message to be struck by the reality that I have to teach on something I'm not actually doing a very good job at doing. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking just because you understand it, you took notes on it, you agree with it, that you're automatically doing it. Not so, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them, so write this down. Jesus says the blessing comes in doing what his word says. The blessing comes in doing what his word says. A lot easier to agree with the concept of living as a servant than it is to actually live as a servant. The truth is that you and I cannot follow Jesus' example on our own strength. We can't live as a servant by just choosing to do so. Everything in the body that you and I are in is waging war against the idea of living as a servant. You realize that? Your flesh, your body is completely against that idea. And when we try to be a servant on our own strength, we just end up grumbling to ourselves about not being appreciated. Jesus wasn't able to be the servant of all because he was a super good guy or just because he knew how to set a goal and achieve it. 
He was able to live as a servant because he had the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him that came from fellowship with the Father through prayer and time in the Word. You can't do it. You can't just choose to live as a servant. I can't do it either. Our only hope is seeking every day to be made full of the Spirit. And you'll know that you're actually doing that when serving becomes a joy. Jesus didn't go around serving and then say, well, I've washed your feet. I hope you're happy. He didn't do that. The word in Psalm 45 says he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than anyone else who's ever lived. There's more joy in Jesus than anyone who's ever lived. If you try to be a servant in your own power, you'll be cranky and you'll get bitter. If you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be filled with joy as you serve. So write this down. We know we're serving in the power of the Holy Spirit when there's joy in our service. We know we're serving in the power of the Holy Spirit when there's joy in our service. The branch of the tree that hangs lowest is usually the one bearing the most fruit. Why do I say that? Because the more humble you are, the more of a servant you become, the more you lower yourself, the more fruitful you're gonna be. Verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Whom I have chosen is a reference to the 12 disciples who the Lord had selected, whom the Lord knew perfectly, including Judas, who was chosen that the prophecy of Psalm 41.9 might be fulfilled. This is what Psalm 41.9 said prophetically. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, God used aspects of King David's life to serve as a prophetic pattern for Jesus' life and ministry. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth as a man, a Jewish king named King David lived a life and part of his life served as a prophetic pattern for the life that Jesus would live. Well, this part of Psalm 41 speaks prophetically about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. It was also a situation that David went through in his own life. When one of David's sons, Absalom, launched a rebellion against him, Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor, defected and sided with David's son, Absalom. So Ahithophel also served as a prophetic pattern of Judas in the sense that he too eventually hung himself when he was overwhelmed by his guilt. But yet, there's another one who was close to Jesus who would also be guilty of betrayal. Peter, who would deny even knowing Jesus three times over in the very hour when Jesus most needed a faithful friend. Peter would betray him. And yet, right now, while we're here, Peter is enjoying the glories of heaven in perfect harmony with Jesus. How's that possible? Because instead of letting his guilt and his shame lead to his own death on a tree, Peter looked to the one who died in his place on a tree, Jesus. You see, we're all guilty. We're all guilty, make no mistake about it. And someone is gonna pay for everything we've done. Someone's gonna die for our sins. It's either gonna be you or it's gonna be Jesus. That's the choice every human being has to make. 
Who's going to die for your sins, you or Jesus? Verse 19, I have this underlined in my Bible, this whole verse. He says, now I tell you before it comes. So Jesus says, I'm telling you about this before it happens, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. This is a key verse in the Bible because this is Jesus himself saying God uses prophecy in his word to authenticate it as the word of God. He does that. Jesus says, I'm telling you what's gonna happen, not so that you can prevent it, not so that you can stop my crucifixion from happening, not so that you can stop antichrist. He says, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you'll know. I'm God, I'm in control of everything, and everything that I've said is going to happen is going to happen. Verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He tells the disciples one more thing that they won't understand at that moment, but they would later on. He's just saying, guys, I'm gonna send you out as my ambassadors into the world. Let me say this in conclusion, living as a servant is never a waste. The Christian measures success not by results, but by obedience. That's how the Christian measures success. Not by what anyone else says about how you're doing, not by how profitable your life is in dollars, not by how many people think you're great at what you do. The Christian measures success by obedience to Jesus. Did I do what Jesus asked me to do? Did I live as he asked me to live? Did I go where he asked me to go? Did I love who he asked me to love? God's called us to live as servants, so when we serve, we're doing it for him. Even if the person we're doing it for never appreciates it, they were never the point. The point was to be obedient to Jesus and to be like Jesus. Just remember, who was still in the room when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Judas. Judas was still in the room. Jesus washed the feet of Judas at the Last Supper. We live as servants to bless God, not for any type of response that we get from those who serve. When Jesus is emotionally exhausted and in desperate need of ministry, man, he needed someone to minister to him he was found ministering to his disciples and washing their feet. Don't ever forget, Jesus took off all his God powers and everything he did on the earth, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. He just walked that closely with his heavenly Father. When you feel exhausted, when serving is difficult, I want to encourage you that you are now approaching the point when the Holy Spirit can actually begin to take over. When you don't have the energy to try anymore, you're in prime position for the Holy Spirit to now empower you and to actually begin to serve and lay down your life through the power of the Holy Spirit rather than through your own energies. We can be good at fighting the good fight with our own energy and own strength, but we're never as effective as when we're serving and loving people with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And sometimes the only way we make that switch is by running out of our own energy. And getting to the point where we say, God, if this is gonna happen, if you want me to serve anybody today, if you want me to serve him, her, or them, you're gonna need to empower me to do that. And then the Lord can finally say, yeah, I've been waiting for that for a while. Glad we can get started now.
Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the example of your son, Jesus, that that when you came to the earth in physical form, you came as a servant to lay down your life and, and to love us in our broken state and our broken condition. Thank you that you love us in such a way that you don't even remember the wrongs we've done, our moments and seasons and years of failure, that if we will allow you to be the one who dies for our sin and our guilt and our shame, all that's left for us is to enjoy you and a relationship with you. Help us to remember where we come from, that we have a maker, we have a creator who put thought into us. Help us to remember our present reality that we are seated with you in heavenly places. That is a certainty. And help us to remember our future, that nothing will change the fact that we're gonna end up in your presence with you, enjoying you forever. Help us to live in light of that. Help us to live in the security of that. And help us to lay down our lives as you did. Being a servant to others, expecting and needing nothing in return, but instead getting everything we need from our relationship with you. Father, help us just to soak in those truths this evening to the point of overwhelming gratitude, Jesus. I'm gonna invite everyone at some point in this coming time of worship to go back behind the chairs and take communion from the table there and just thank Jesus for dying in your place. But let me really encourage you as well to spend some time soaking in those truths, where you come from, what your position is in Christ right now, where you're gonna spend eternity. Just begin thinking on those things till you reach that point where you just naturally begin to thank the Lord for everything that he's done for you. I think that's gonna do more to to help you and I live as servants than anything else that we could do. To serve and love out of gratitude to Jesus for what he's done. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.